Hi, we're glad that you're enjoying our podcast. We love making it and we do it for almost free. But it does cost us some time and money. So if you want to support us, you can do so for as little as a few dollars or euros a month and get even our bonus book club recordings via our Patreon page. Or if you don't want to be tied down to that monthly payment, you can check out our tip jar over on the website. And that's on the page How to Support Us, where you can also make your donation. We appreciate all the support we've gotten so far, and we'll let you get back to the episode. My instinct was that this seems absurd as a solution, but perhaps for victim groups, this is a useful solution. But I actually think it had it had almost reached absurd dimensions before now that people have just kind of lost interest. And you saw there was an ironic moment when the submissions were first being made where um, prosecutor Rupert Elderkin said, you know, this is so important for the international community that are watching this trial. And I mean, I had been out there. It was just me. Medieval crimes are being committed. I come with clean hands. Victims of horrific crimes want justice. We don't have anything better than this. This is Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast with Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. This episode was produced in partnership with justiceinfo.net. All rise. Hi, Steph. Hi, Janet. So we've got a bit of a bombshell. Well, I don't know, a Hague-style bombshell. We have a new procedure being proposed at one of the international courts. I thought we could start off with a bit of general background to get everybody there. So I've written out some things for you to say, Steph, see how you go with this. Yes, I did the, I did the Reuters blurb, so I know. Felicien Kabuga is a former Rwandan coffee and tea tycoon who is alleged to have bankrolled the Radio Television Libre de Mille Collines, which is uh, one of the Rwandan television and radio stations, which is widely cited as, as uh, disseminating a lot of hate speech during uh, the genocide there in 1994. And Kabuga uh, was indicted by the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. I don't remember exactly when, but he's been on the run 1997, for 20- and he's been on the run since since then. Until he was found during lockdown, essentially, in a Paris, in an apartment near Paris. Uh, and we had a podcast on exactly how he was found with uh, UN Chief Prosecutor Serge Brammertz. And he's been on trial here in The Hague uh, once he was transferred from Paris and partly didn't go to Arusha because of his delicate health. Uh, that's at the the residual mechanism for international criminal tribunals, the follow-on successor institution to the ICTR. And he was charged with six counts of genocide, murder and extermination. Now, the first thing to note is that the doctors found, and it was accepted by the judges, that Kabuga, who is in his late 80s, early 90s, but his date of birth is disputed, had dementia and can't follow his trial or can't be considered to be able to contribute um, in a meaningful way to the trial, which means he's essentially unfit to stand trial. And the court hearings were already really limited because he wasn't obviously very, very well. And now we come on to the new bit uh, where I had already written all of the story to say that the trial had been halted. It has, big surprise, indeed not been halted. They're going to find, they're going to pursue an alternative finding procedure. Yeah, it's a bit of a first. So do we know anything, Steph, about this? I mean, what's the quote that, that we can use? The quote I used was that they propose an alternative finding procedure that resembles a trial as closely as possible, but without the possibility of a sentence. 
So this raises just so many questions, which we'll come to later in the the podcast about exactly how they prove it, what the burden of proof is, um, how he could be found guilty, what that would mean to help us through all of this, or unless you want to add something to that stuff. Well, the one thing I found remarkable, so that they say that he can't be convicted, but he possibly can be acquitted. And so I'm wondering what then the in-between version should be. But Exactly. We've got all of this to come. So let's turn to our guest first, who is uh, Lucy Gaynor. Hi, Lucy. Hi. Lucy's at the University of Amsterdam and uh, also at NEOD, the Institute for War, Holocaust and Genocide Studies. And Lucy, you've been monitoring the Kabuga case. So would you like to give us a first reaction? Watching the hearings, I was very sure that something like this was going to be the case because I really got the impression that everybody in the courtroom, aside from the defense, was was really keen to not let it stop in one way or another. But at the same time, once the hearings ended, which was a long time ago, I kind of thinking over it was thinking there's no way. There's no way they can make any decision other than what they did. So not surprised, but kind of still shocked at the kind of acrobatics reasoning they managed to use to kind of come out with this new procedure. Because I looked at uh, everybody that's been declared unfit for trial, and none of them had this procedure. There's only two in international law. No, I mean, it's never been done before. And they both had their sentence halted. But you've talked to somebody else as well about this. Well, I've talked to, I contacted everybody who started sort of making some comments about this and said, okay, do you want to let me know what, what you're thinking? So I'm going to go in detail to lots and lots of different reactions. And then we'll come back to, to you, Lucy, and we can carry on chatting because it's just, it really is extraordinary. I'm not suggesting that all of these reactions have got to represent it just gives you an idea of the range of reactions that, that have come out in our community about this. So start with uh, Suzanne Scott. She's at the University of Amsterdam and she has major questions on the procedure. What I think is very important is the management of expectations, which is very much missing from this decision, maybe also for obvious reasons, because this is something that may take form as this procedure is created or more information is shared about what this will look like. But as victims and witnesses are mentioned in the decision, I think this is a very important aspect that needs to be addressed. Because what are the consequences of conducting this procedure in this way for them? I also contacted Kajal Ramjathan Kioch, the head of the International Commission for Jurists of Africa. And basically, she welcomes this new idea in general, but she had quite a few caveats. In terms of justice and fairness, this appears to be a hollow ending for victims of the Rwandan genocide. However, it is also important to learn the truth of his role. So in the circumstances, an alternative procedure is welcomed. There is as yet no detail available on this alternative procedure. And one would hope that Mr. Kabuga will at the minimum provide this insight into his role and actions in the genocide. What will be the purpose of such a trial? One cannot assume that it will serve the interests of the victims. Yes, it might help the victims know part of the truth, but without the prospect of a finding of guilt, there is no point for that trial. After Kajal, we also hear from Roland Ajovi, who's an international legal practitioner, who, as you can hear there, he's 
really wondering what this is about. And he continues. Difficult for me to see any value in such a trial without the possibility of a conviction. Will Kabuga be free and go home to his family? Will the tribunal issue an order for his medical treatment? If so, where and at whose cost? Or will Kabuga remain in detention with the medical supervision indefinitely? Many unanswered questions. So I also thought it might be useful to turn to some people who might understand more of this procedure. One person is Javier Escariazza, uh, but he teaches at the University of Nottingham and very clearly understands what goes on in the UK. And he pointed out that the judges had cited examples from a range of countries, including England and Wales, from New Zealand, Guatemala. And he explained to me that under English and Welsh laws, if a defendant is unfit to plead, judges can proceed to a thing called a section four, where a jury then decides if the prosecution has proven the case. At this hearing, the question is whether the prosecution can prove beyond reasonable doubt that the defendant did the act or made the omission. So it's the actus reus that is in focus. And this is a really high bar for the prosecution to prove. Javier continues. These special proceedings are obviously trying to balance a number of different aims and objectives of the criminal justice system. On the one hand, it is about the legitimacy of the court's disposal powers with respect to the defendant's fundamental rights. On the other, it's about the defence of the public with respect to any ongoing danger posed by the defendant. And what's interesting in Kabuga is that in order to plug a gap in the procedural rules, the court has decided to adopt this procedure to balance a similar though not identical set of aims and objectives in what is obviously a very different criminal justice setting. Okay, now we turn to Melissa Sims. Melissa Sims is an international lawyer and she says this procedure is just completely unsupported. My view is that if the Kabuga case was subjected to domestic considerations, such as whether it is in the public interest, that the judges are likely, or the the prosecuting authorities and even judges, perhaps would weigh the public interest and determine that it is not in the public interest or in the interest of justice to proceed with such a procedure. In this particular case of Kabuga, given his assessment that he is suffering from dementia and seems to be deteriorating at a rapid level, there is no such consideration as there is no risk of reoffending and there is no likelihood that the defendant will recover from uh, dementia. And therefore, when you assess the circumstances, one leans towards uh, concluding that it's not in the interest of justice to proceed uh, with such a procedure such as the alternative finding um, procedure. Furthermore, when you look at where the life of the residual mechanism is, where it is coming to the end of proceedings, one wonders in terms of use of resources, whether it should commit itself to such a procedure where it is not settled in its statute, in its rules, or in its jurisprudence, and there can be no finding relating to the accused um, as to whether he is guilty of the charges. Maybe to pause before we go back to some of those comments and bring uh, bring you back in, 
Lucy. I mean, we've got this two to one ruling as well. The judges very definitely had different views. Maybe because you've been watching the trial, maybe you this is relevant that you could just tell us a bit about the three judges on the case. Yeah. So I mean watching the the actual trial itself, the it was mainly the presiding judge, uh, Ian Bonamy, that was the most involved with questioning witnesses. But during the hearings of the medical experts, all of the judges were quite involved in questioning. But I, I didn't really get the impression from those hearings that that Judge Elbaj was taking a very different um, approach to the other two. I'm surprised that he's dissented both on the unfitness to stand trial and the procedure because I really got a sense of unity from the judges about their kind of interpretation of what the medical experts were saying. Um, but at the same time, there was a lot of skepticism for the medical experts. You know, there was a lot of questions about different procedures. I know one of the first medical experts to testify was an Irish professor, Professor Kennedy. And Judge Bonamy asked him at length about procedures in Ireland for continuing. So there was there was a clear kind of preference from the judges for domestic jurisdiction input as well, which I think influenced some of the prosecutor submissions later on as well. And if you look at at the the ruling uh, that came out, you say he dissented on the unfitness to stand trial. So, and maybe I'm wrong with this, but what I understood from it um, is that he disagrees that he may be unfit to stand trial. So he thinks he's then fit to stand trial if they limit it maybe further or do other accommodations. But then he doesn't agree with having this alternative procedure if you declare him unfit to stand trial. Yeah, yeah. I think he was skeptical of the the testing that was used um, and also the manner of it, because I think some of the conversations um, with the psychiatrists that were used as evidence were conversations over Zoom or short conversations that I think he was unconvinced of the merit of them necessarily um, or the conclusiveness of them. So, But he, he clearly thinks that perhaps he is still fit to stand trial or can be in some method, but disagrees with, with the idea of moving to a different procedure. And some of my um, commentators also were looking at that kind of split judgment. Uh, here's uh, Roland pointing out that it wasn't unanimous. As it appears here, the decision is not unanimous. One of the three judges disagreed and was of the view that a normal trial could have taken place in this case. I now wonder whether this matter will go on appeal for a second assessment. Will any of the parties challenge it? I have doubts, especially when the defence will be satisfied with the decision. And he raises the, you know, what's the reaction of the defence going to be? I know we're going to come back to, to, to you, Steph and Lucy, to help us through all the questions it raised. But just again, some more comments. Here's uh, Melissa again, really wondering how useful this procedure could be for victims uh, in the end. And she basically says it's really strange and she can't imagine that victims and witnesses would actually get much out of it. When you give consideration to the fact that this is a new procedure that is being proposed and from the judgment they haven't settled on the mechanics of it, one would conclude that it is not useful at this particular stage for victims and witnesses, some of whom would have already participated in proceedings, to be put through a process where there won't be any finding of culpability um, in relation to the accused. 
And then I thought also I might as well ask somebody from Rwanda. So I contacted a Rwandan journalist, uh, Samuel Baker Bianci, and just to ask, what, how is this going down in, in Rwanda? Justice delayed is justice denied. And uh, for the Kabuga's case, uh, he have been uh, living under false uh, identity and invaded capture for decades. And now even after his arrest, uh, the hope for the victims of his actions to get justice has decreased uh, following the recent decision by the court. Uh, I personally believe and trust in law and according to law principles of incapacity or insanity, if it is proven by professional doctors that someone is unfit to stand trial, it has no absolute exception. So uh, as a community, we come to terms with the legal reality at hand that the trial has to be stopped effective immediately as the court did. So uh, dubbed uh, by the fact that the presumption of innocence principle enshrined in both our constitution, Article 29, and in international conventions, Rwanda is a signatory too. We have to come to the legal reality that Kabuga uh, will or may die an innocent man as court has not technically convicted him. So uh, that, that means a lot to uh, our community, especially the victims of the uh, 1994 genocide against the Tutsi. And uh, for his case taking wrong also means a lot uh, because it may result for, for, for his innocence in the end. And it means a lot. It means a lot uh, to what we call justice because this is, uh, we expect and expected more than that from the international courts uh, for, for these uh, fugitive or these perpetrators that actually participated in the genocide that killed our family members, killed our relatives to get punished, to, to get convicted. So the more it takes long, the more uh, it gives them a chance to walk away innocent people, which uh, is, is, is in, in reality not uh, the justice that we, uh, the, the, the victims of the genocide could be served in this case. So I feel a bit overwhelmed, I must say, myself, by this debate that's going on within our community as to how this new procedure will work whether it's fair, whether it will actually deliver anything to victims. I mean, it just seems to raise far more questions than it solves. I mean, did, Steph, did you manage to get a reaction from the defence uh, when this came out? Yes, my colleagues talked to uh, uh, Kabuga's lawyer, Emmanuel Altid, who basically said that they were very happy with the decision to find him unfit to stand trial, but that he wasn't so sure about, of course, this alternative findings procedure and that they didn't know yet whether he would appeal. But I kind of think that's a given, especially if you have such a split judgment. I can't imagine that he wouldn't try to appeal it and at least get his client uh, home in some sense. What I also find remarkable, and this is again with my Yugo hat on, uh, we're talking about the presiding judge being Scottish, but one thing you shouldn't also forget is that Judge Bonomi was also the presiding judge in the Milosevic case at the moment when he died in 2006, leaving that case, the big Balkans war case, unresolved. And then there was a lot of clamor that we would never find out what Milosevic did. So I... Well, that's the point that uh, Samuel and others make, which is, you know, what if this just finishes in the middle and in the end whose justice is being served by by this
Yeah, and I think that the, everybody at the tribunal, and especially Judge Bonomi, has a big, what in Dutch you would say, he has a hangover from the unresolved Milosevic case. And I really think that plays a lot into wanting to have some kind of resolution for this. And it also very clearly states in the decision that this situation is partly of Kabuga's own, own making because he was on the run for 20 years, which means that he's now in his late 80s, therefore much more prone to dementia. He could have been, you know, on trial uh, 20 years ago, and we wouldn't have this issue if he just uh, was, didn't go on the lamp. So, Well, some people pointed out, isn't it, that it's also the Swiss problem because they didn't arrest him when they had the possibility of doing so. So maybe we shouldn't just blame Kabuga, but also uh, blame some governments as well for not actually doing what they needed to do to, to arrest him. Lisi, what are you picking up? I mean, you know, what are people saying to you about the reality of this procedure and how it's going to work? Well, I mean, one of the interesting things that I spotted in the submissions before this decision was made is that the defense, um, Altit regularly refers to it as a trial of the facts and the prosecution and the judges refer to it as an examination of the facts. And I really think that there was a clear disconnect in the trial already of the defense felt that this was essentially going to be a trial that wasn't a trial, a combination. And it seems to me a combination of a trial in absentia and a kind of truth commission that that still kind of from their point of view, places their client as a suspect when really he's not fit to stand trial. Um, but the reactions, I think, have been very interesting. I, I was speaking to um, somebody in Arusha last week who's been covering it as well, who says that, you know, my observations are completely from my point of view as a historian. And so I hadn't been as in touch with victims, for example, or affected groups. And he was saying to me that, you know, the, the trial had petered out to such an extent that there was such a frustration People had lost hope. That yeah, because my my instinct was that this seems absurd as a solution, but perhaps for victim groups this is a useful solution. But I actually think it had it had almost reached absurd dimensions before now that people have just kind of lost interest. And you saw um there was an ironic moment when the submissions were first being made where um, Prosecutor Rupert Elderkin said, you know, this is so important for the international community that are watching this trial. And I mean, I had been out there. It was just me. Yeah, and, you're you it. Know, I was you're like, the who, international community. Yeah, who, who, who are, are you? my lifeline? The fact that you tweet about it is the, is the, is the way that I keep track of this trial because yeah. there's just so much else going on grabbing my attention. So I was and so grateful. And it's so irregular. I mean, so it's just irregular. occasionally comes up and then you dive into it. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, the first day, the opening statements, um, the, the courtroom was very busy, obviously with press, but with a lot of other, a lot of young kind of legal students and, and other members of the public. Um, but it was really interesting for me to see that everyone was sitting there saying, you know, where's he going to sit? Where's he going to be? And even the security guards were going to be like, he's going to be sitting right there. And there was this real sense. And of course, at that stage, he was boycotting the proceedings because he had a dispute over his defense attorney. And there was, as soon as he wasn't there, everyone kind of went, oh, and then the next day for the defense opening statements, there was hardly anybody there. And so even at the very beginning, it, him as a figure was attracting a lot of attention. But I think his trial was was not in the same way that people were you know, excited that he had been caught and that he was finally on trial. But then the substance of the trial kind of just went under the radar a little bit. One of the very interesting legal points that I read through the decision is that they talk about this UK situation of a trial of facts, but then they say 
that would be just to establish that these crimes have happened and we already have that to a large extent in Rwanda, obviously. There's the whole because kind of, of the back whole catalog. Previous. Uh, but uh, yes, this would be different because they would want to say something about his intent, his mens rea. And f- but for you to have a proper kind of defense to to mount that without being able to speak to your uh, client. And I think Altid, when he told my colleague that he's not speaking to Kabuga or Kabuga doesn't want to speak to him, so That's already fine. they were having this trial where he doesn't want to talk uh, because he has a conflict or his family has a conflict with with his lawyer. It's just amazing that then, so how are you going to do it? He's unfit to stand trial, but you're going to probe his mental state at that time without asking him. And then you're going to make a decision about his mental state, but then you're not going to make any decision. I mean, where will he be physically? I mean, if a man is suffering from dementia, but potentially he should be in hospital or cared for in some other institution. Yeah. I looked through the, the precedents for it, and there is Intrikit, I think, at the Cambodia Tribunal, and there was Pavlis Drugar at the ICTY, who were both declared unfit to stand trial on mental health grounds. And they weren't immediately released. Uh, they were kind of kept in custody and then monitored. Uh, Strugar eventually got to go home and then, uh, uh, but he kept being monitored because he had a condition where and he was slightly younger, so that could improve. But then in the Cambodia case, because dementia is progressive and it's, there's no cure, uh, she uh, eventually uh, died, but she was still, I think, in the, in the custody of, of the tribunal. So that's also seems odd why, I mean, I have issues with wanting to keep a senile eight-year-old, even if it turns out to have been a horrible man in, in a facility where he doesn't know why why he's there or being punished for it. I, I have questions. Looking ahead, I will assume that there will be an enormous amount of litigation around this. I mean, there just has to be huge amounts of discussion. Is it possible for people other than the parties to weigh in on this and to be like amicus? Curiae, sort of friends of the courts to to give in because I can imagine the floodgates would open then and we get an awful lot of different people. Have you heard anything, Lucy? I haven't. I know that in the decision they call for submissions from the prosecution and defence, so I would imagine they will get those submissions and then perhaps issue a call. But yeah, it's it's hard to say really because, as you say, the floodgates would really open uh, in that sense. I think everybody and their uncle would want to write an amicus brief for this. And they're probably already sharpening their pens, some of the legal commentators we know. Uh, so any idea on timeline uh, stuff? I mean, it feels very open-ended to me. Honestly, I have to say I called the ICTY about this and I don't want to throw them under a bus, but the uh, the phone number for the spokesperson said <laughs> that the, <laughs> the phone was out of range and I got the answering machine and the general number. So um, that's kind of the extent of the communication I had on the timeline. So maybe she was just not there uh, on that day, but uh, I have I have no idea for the timeline. Okay, concluding remarks. Where do we go from here? Anything to say? Or is that, uh, that uh, what else would you like to add in, Lucy? Because uh, I'm just bamboozled by this whole thing. Yeah, I mean, I think the idea and the seeming idea behind a quote unquote trial of the facts is to, as you say earlier, establish that these crimes have happened. And to me, that sounds like something close to a truth commission or a historical commission. But if all of these safeguards for Kabuga's rights have to be met, then it, it is 
as far as I can see, if that's the form that it takes, it's going to be a, a trial kind of masquerading as a truth commission. And, and therefore, will it actually benefit either law or history? Or will it just do justice to neither? I think it's, if you saw in the prosecution submission, they said that they should have this kind of alternative procedure so that they could shed a light on his role in the financing of the radio and television station, but also the kind of structure in the way that the Inter-Ahamwe was financed and the Inter-Ahamwe are the Hutu youth militias who were largely behind uh, the killings. So it seems odd than if you conclude that he had a central role, but you can't convict him. Well, I mean, from the point of view of when the trial was actually happening, the other layer of complication is that he is essentially an indirect, he's accused of being an indirect perpetrator because he financed these things. And even as the trial was going on, it was clear that it was very difficult to tie him to a lot of these crimes and would be were he a 40-year-old defendant, never mind someone who's not participating in the trial. But because it was so long ago and because he is deemed an in, largely an indirect perpetrator, there's that added level of difficulty that if they're trying to establish his role in a procedure that he has no nothing to do with, how much can you actually shed light on that we don't already know about the Interhamway or, or RTLM? Because... It, it, the witnesses that have been speaking so far were talking about, you know, seeing Interahamwe training in his compound and they didn't know if he was there or he was there, but they didn't see him interact. So there, there's all these other layers as well that I don't see how an alternative procedure is going to get to the bottom of them better than a trial would have. And even if they have, then, as you say, it's very hard to convict somebody uh, who is already uh, has is accused of having this intermediary role and we haven't had uh, a smoking gun uh, situation in, in the testimony so far. So you could also see an acquittal and then one, where's the justice in that? If we keep saying it's for the victims, then maybe it's best that, yeah, that we don't know. It seems, it, it, I think it mixes up a lot of things where you have this idea where you the trial, there's a legal procedure that you have to follow to get accountability, which at the tribunals especially gets super mixed in with this reconciliation and creating one historical truth, uh, which I also have a lot of questions about if a trial is for that, uh, as I say regularly on this podcast. And the idea that a trial is about reconciliation, could they actually put that into the into this decision as well, that yes. this is the bigger purpose of this trial, um, of yes. this is the bigger purpose of this tribunal? And that feels to me like, um, it feels like a step too far to me. I kind of was like the 1990s called and they want their idealism back. I was like, are we at this again? I thought we decided like after those tribunals closed down that this is not the way to go about that. But I was surprised at this kind of idealism coming from the judges in this decision and citing it as a reason to have this weird in-between procedure. I wonder, do they, one of the things that occurred to me was that as the the potential last trial ever, you know, they might feel that they have more scope for this because had you tried something like this at a trial in the 2000s, I mean, all the legitimacy questions would come up and say this is completely illegitimate. It's essentially a trial in abstentia. And so there might be a feeling there that, okay, the, the tribunal and the mechanism now has this established legitimacy. It has all of these verdicts. And so they're now trying to push for something more creative with it. But I, I really think that 
it's doing the the trial a, a disservice or what they were trying to do a disservice. Yeah, and you can be very uncharitable and say that they're just keeping it along to keep getting their nice uh, UN paychecks. But also, this opens the floodgates, right? If you do this for Kabuga and you set up a mech, what's let's Where let's reopen to see uh, Milosevic's case. Yes, yes. Bonami yes. was quite clear about that in early procedures when um, Prosecutor Elderkin mentioned it. He interrupted him and said, "You know, you must remember we have no mandate for this." whatsoever. And that was in one of the very first hearings. But then it seems as the hearings went on, they they became more interested in something like this. But I mean, he's right. There is no mandate for it whatsoever. So if they then create a, a precedent for it, where where does the where do you draw the line after that? Well, I think we've got to use the old journalist cliche of kind of watch this space and uh, maybe get you back on again, Lucy, as we get into to the next uh, stage uh, when we actually find out what it means. As always, we end the podcast with our asymmetrical haircuts questions. We have a couple and I'm going to ask all of them. And I might already have an answer on the first one, but maybe not. We now ask what your favorite trial is or your favorite case to talk about. And we've invited you for Kabuga, so it might be Kabuga, but it could also be something else. So we're really curious. Actually, my favorite one to talk about is Ongwen, because that was... um, kind of the first trial that I really observed for a long time and got very interested in and was also very complex in a lot of ways. Um, So I think for me, that is for, it seems strange to say, nostalgia reasons about a large criminal trial of a former child soldier, but that is my favorite one to talk about, I think. And Dominic Ongwen, of course, is the former LRA commander, child soldier turned LRA commander, as the Reuters headline goes, who was convicted for war crimes at the ICC. Our other question, which I should have asked before this, but is there anything that we didn't ask you that we should have asked you on Kabuga? No, I don't think so. I think that, I mean, it might be evident from um, my thoughts as opposed to the legal experts' thoughts that obviously my perspective is a historian's perspective. So I am mostly interested and was even before all of this kicked off in how the trial talked about history, which I think has become even more pertinent. Um, But perhaps is will be more important as the shape of that trial or examination takes shape. Um, I don't have as many perhaps insights on what it might look like from a legal point of view, but when it is set up on kind of how it discusses history or doesn't um, will be very interesting. For a historian, it must be fascinating to watch something that is trying to be a procedure to establish some kind of historical truth, if that's what they land on the reason for it being. Yeah, it's uh, it's exceptionally frustrating at times, um, but also just very interesting to see how this idea is is discussed, especially in this trial, because essentially everything is history in this trial because it all happened so long ago. So to see how the trial procedures kind of grapple with that is very interesting. And finally, we always ask uh, people who come here, is there anything you're watching, reading, listening to that or some kind of activity that you do to get away from all the war crimes that you can recommend to our listeners? I'm currently watching the Tokyo Trials on Netflix, a docudrama about the essentially the Tokyo equivalent of the Nuremberg Trials, which is uh, really interesting, but perhaps not an escape from the normal world of criminal justice. What I can recommend everybody do is watch the tennis to escape that. That's my uh, that's my complete escape is watching tennis. So the French Open is on at the moment, which I have been glued to, and Wimbledon is in a few weeks. So I'm looking forward to that. It's the season, definitely. 
So thank you so much, Lucy, for uh, hot-footing it, uh, coming back from Arusha just to take part in the podcast and uh, give us your insights. And it's been really interesting. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes, I'm sure we'll ask you back when smoke clears and we know what to expect. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast, created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. This episode was produced in partnership with justiceinfo.net, an independent site covering justice effort for mass violence. Music is by audionautics.com, and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating, and spread the word. <laughs>